Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. It is Sunday, April 18, 2021. And we're going to talk about the satanic Nike tennis shoes that everyone's up in arms about. Yep. Nike is very angry at the rapper Lil Nas X. That's his that's his name, yeah. Basically telling him, just go to hell, pal. Uh, no, you, that's you good. can't ruin that's our really shoes. Uh, gonna... By the way, the second half of the show is just going to be straight playing Lil Nas X songs and making Royal Oaks react to them. I'm but very excited for wouldn't that. we get sued for playing his song because we don't have permission? We haven't paid royalties? Lil Nas would understand. Okay. He would definitely You understand. think so? Yeah. So we're going to talk about the satanic Nikes. We're going to talk about the court packing controversy in Washington. D.C. Mm-hmm. and the George uh, Floyd uh, Derek Chauvin trial going on in Minneapolis. Of course, final arguments are set tomorrow, Monday, and deliberations will probably start late in the day tomorrow. By the time this podcast drops on Wednesday, we may already have a verdict, but I don't think so. I don't think it'll be quite that fast, but we shall see. So let's kick it off. Uh, explain this to me, Connor. You're, you're going to have to. You have this millennial sensibility okay. and, yeah. and and broad knowledge of of all things of pop culture. Yeah. So Nike has these shoes. Yeah, they're they called the, Air Max 95s, I think. They've got the big uh, and, swoosh on them. Everybody knows they're Nike. Right, a very identifiable. They've got an air pocket underneath your heel, so you're like walking on air, hence the Air Max, right? Lil Nas X, rapper, puts out a song called Montero, and then an accompanying music video, which our listeners will all have heard, of <laughs> course, and seen. Is this the one um, where he rides the horse? Uh, no, that's Old Town Road. Which yeah, was that's a, a good one. A I really great like one, that absolutely. One. And this one, instead, he dies and then rides a pole, like a stripper pole, down to hell, and then dances. So it's a reenactment of Dante's Inferno. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. With it's, a modern update. Exactly. And then he uh, interacts with the devil in a sort of a uh, dancing way, way uh, and then spoiler alert kills the devil becomes the devil so the, that's the sort of that's that's the material we're working with and to accompany this of course uh, naturally he contracts with a company a New York based sneaker modification aftermarket sneaker modification company that's a thing uh, called mischief but with no vowels it's just MSCHF or something um, and they decide there are no vowels in hell 
Exactly. Yeah. They decide to put out a limited edition set of 666 pairs of modified Nike uh, Air Max. Uh, Connor, how'd they pick 666? Oh, I probably don't get random. It. Maybe that's all they could buy, okay. you know. So they buy these shoes from Nike and then they add a bunch of satanic imagery and they don't get rid of the Nike Plus, swoosh. they add a drop of human blood. To and each then shoe. they add a single drop of yeah, human okay. blood. Okay. So you tell me why Nike shouldn't be able to blast away in court <laughs> and sue the pants off of these people well, for, for ruining Nike's reputation. Let's a lot talk. of people assume yeah. that Nike is behind this. And that's exactly the issue. So let's go step one. The, there's the, a concept called the first sale doctrine in copyright and trademark law. And the concept is that after the first sale of an item, the person who bought it could do whatever they want with it. If you buy a copy of Harry Potter and then you scribble all over it and you write J.K. Rowling is a transphobe or you burn it or you throw it in a lake or you sell it or whatever you want to do, donate it. It doesn't matter. You can do anything okay, in you In general, want. you can do. But what if you're destroying the reputation of poor Nike and suddenly right. their sales right. drop down to zero because a lot of yeah. evangelical folks yeah. in, in the heartland of yeah. America are no longer going to buy the swoosh because yes. they think they're devil worshippers. That's, that's exactly the issue. So what the what, what really uh, arises, the bit, there are lots of technical terms and legal tests that get you to this point. But the big picture is trademark is there to prevent consumers from being confused. Microsoft can say nobody else can call, them, call themselves Microsoft and try to sell uh, products in a way that cons uh, confuses consumers. Even if the fact is that we're a different, they're a different company, and the the Nike swoosh is slightly different, or the M and Microsoft slightly different, people are going to be confused, and that's not right. And the so, if rapper Lil Nas yeah. uh, sells light bulbs uh, and he calls himself General Hellectric, right? Ooh, uh, you think nice. maybe he could be sued? Nice, absolutely, okay. yeah, absolutely. Now, the 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 question here though is uh, not. Uh, just are consumers confused, but then the next step is, is Nike's uh, brand tarnished? So tarnishment is the most important of the legal tests here. And tarnishment says, okay, okay, you're not trying to uh, confuse people, probably. It doesn't matter if you are or aren't trying to confuse people. Uh, but we were asking if you did confuse people, and if we come up with a yes, and I'll be honest, I thought that this was an official Nike collaboration when I first saw the story. Of I did too. Nike selling, you know, official, you're selling Nike Air Maxes with satanic imagery on them. It looks like a collab with Nike itself. And Nike collabs with a lot of people. That's a, that's a thing that they do. The question is, is Nike's brand actually harmed? And Nike then goes in and shows, yeah, look, we do surveys. People do react badly. Uh, they, they don't want to buy our shoes anymore. And then suddenly Lil Nas X is going to be on the hook for big damages. And yet there's another wrinkle here because mischief, this is not the first time that the company has bought aftermarket uh, Nikes and modified them and then sold them. And the last time they did it, they made Jesus-themed shoes. Uh-huh. Dun, dun, dun. New wrinkle. We've got the issue that the their previous project, which put, uh, you know, a cross and uh, a, a Bible verse attached to it and put a blessed holy water in, in, the, uh, in the Air Max pocket instead of uh, blood, in that context, when they weren't sued over it, uh, they explicitly described the project as a piece of parody of the fact that Nike will do a collab with anybody. They're saying this is political commentary on the mm -hmm. fact that this ultra-gigantic mega corporation will literally collab with anybody 
and, and even and communists produce, uh, and, and negotiate with the communist China to, sure they, to sell their shoes over there. I'm oh. sure they would. And this is, you know, exactly. That's exactly the sort of thing. Nike is this gigantic multinational corporation that you could a lot of people would say has got blood on their hands for their you know, blah, 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 the, the bad things that they do by collaborating with basically and anybody. Now blood in their shoes. So in this case. Suddenly that throws this case into a slightly different light where all of a sudden we're thinking maybe this is more like First Amendment uh, protected free speech where a little Nas X is taking the opportunity that his song has become very big um, and Mischief is taking this opportunity that, 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 that the people are talking about it. And they're saying, what would it look like if Nike did a collaboration with the devil? And if you draw a piece of art on a paint on a painting in a painting, and it it shows the CEO of Nike shaking hands with the devil while child slaves who make, you know, sneakers in Indonesia or China in the background are, you know, crying out for help. That's explicitly and clearly a First Amendment protected piece of art. And it's going to be a lot harder for Nike to say that this is something that they can sue over because you're allowed to make you know, very controversial pieces of art and do it because of the free speech protections. You can make Piss Christ, right? The famous crucifix in a jar of piss from the 70s. Maplethorpe. Yeah, exactly. The artist named Maplethorpe. And it was super controversial, of course. But that was the point. The point was to get people talking and to say, you know, you you can make lots of people have been making art about the Catholic Church and its pedophilia scandals and the abuse scandals that these people uh, uh, have, uh, have, have engaged in while, you know, being moved around, shuttled around by the Catholic Church. And that you you create art about that, you talk about that, and so we we offer much higher levels of First Amendment protection to something that has actual, real political speech implications. So Nike has sued the rapper. Right. Uh, you put your uh, put your hat uh, predicting hat on. Who's going to win? Do you think Nike is going to win the big bucks against him, or yeah. is he going to win? I think so. First of all, uh, 665 pairs of the shoes were already sh- uh, shipped. One pair remains unshipped that Nike wanted a, ter- a, a temporary restraining order against them to ship that that last pair. That last pair was not intended to be sold. I believe it was you know going to be kept for some sort of charity auction. Put in a museum. Yeah, yeah. I think that last uh, they had plans for for how to to sell it or, or auction it or something, but but it's not a big deal. And whether uh, Nike gets that temporary restraining order that they're asking for the TRO uh, in the you know, preliminary stages of this lawsuit, the odds are very low um, uh, that, that it will actually matter even if they do get it because it's just the one pair. Uh, there's no way that Nike ever gets these 60, 665 pairs of shoes back you know, out from the wild. They can't make people return them. They're just out there. Um, they're all scuffed up by now anyway. Exactly. People have been wearing them. Well, probably not very much, but um, <laughs> pretty expensive. To be. They were they were being sold for $1,018. Really? And I think $1,018 is a reference to a Bible verse like Luke 1018 or something really? like that, or 1018 or something. I don't know what the, I don't know anything about the Bible. Don't ask me. Um, but anyway, um, in terms of big picture outcomes, I can't see Lil Nas X uh, surviving the onslaught of Nike lawyers who have very good arguments about tarnishment of the brand and a likely uh, danger of confusion, because you know your your First Amendment free speech is protected, but if you if you uh, exercise your First Amendment free speech in a way that threatens the intellectual property of a gigantic corporation, they're going to crush you, and the courts are going to be on the side wow, of the gigantic. I'm, I'm concerned then for for rapper Lil Nas because I, I know big time litigation like this it, it could cost him 
five, six million dollars in legal fees. Brutal. And he's only going to get four billion dollars in publicity out of this. Yeah, so what's he going to do? How's it going to pencil out? Yeah, absolutely. He he's gets a lot of publicity. He's great on Twitter. He he, he tweeted uh, the, the other day uh, something like, guys, you guys keep buying the song. I, I need to pay for the stupid Nike lawsuit. <laughs> All right. Well, your prediction is on record. Um, when we come back, we are going to talk about the court packing controversy. But first, Connor is going to tell you how to rate and subscribe to many lawyers. Yeah. Check us out on whatever podcast platform it is you use. Uh, as always, especially it's probably Apple Podcasts. Uh, leave us a review, which really, really helps. Make sure you're you know, slamming that uh, subscribe button, as they always say. Um, at having you know the subscription means that you're going to get a little notification when a new episode goes up, uh, which it always goes up every week anyway. So uh, we're pretty regular on that front. Uh, but uh, we really would appreciate it because every little uh, review and star rating uh, and subscription button helps. Hey, here's a tip. When you renew your subscription to National Review Magazine, just re- subscribe yeah. to our podcast as well. To National Defense of Jim Crow uh, Foundational Magazine. We'll be right back on Tony Lawyers. <laughs> The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. I'm Chris Hahn, the Aggressive Progressive. Check out a new episode of the Aggressive Progressive podcast every Tuesday. You know, the election is heating up just as the year is winding down. Stick with me. I'll tell you the truth as I see it. Download the Aggressive Progressive on Pandora or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. I'm Connor Oaks. So court packing, big uh, big issue in Washington D.C. That was fast. Uh, uh, didn't uh, the Democrats in Congress they want to they want to pass a law to uh, expand the U.S. Supreme Court from nine to thirteen? Right. But didn't the president just a week or so ago appoint a commission to get back to him in six months? A blue ribbon uh, committee about or something. How probably, to yeah. reform uh, the the court system and so on? So. <sighs> You know, it's funny. Um, even some progressives, Connor, don't like the court packing law. Uh, Bernie Sanders uh, doesn't support it. Apparently, he has warned that if Democrats do it, then the next time the Republicans in power, they will do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a week or so ago, left of center Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, who is a registered Democrat, he warned uh, during a speech at Harvard that packing the court will diminish confidence in the courts mm-hmm. and in the rule of law itself. Oh, yeah. It's going to lead to diminishing the court's power, including its power to act as a check on the other branches, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg a few years ago said that it'll make the court appear more partisan. It'll trigger a constant expansion of the courts every time there's a power change in Washington, D.C. Even Harry Reid, the former head guy in the Senate for the Democrats, he he said, oh, we got to be very, very careful in doing this. I have no problem with the commission, but it's going to disappoint a lot of people. We should probably just leave it, leave it alone. So, I mean, do, do you think that there's enough dissension in the ranks among the Democrats that it really didn't have a realistic chance of passing? It's really, really hard to say. And I think that it is a, a, a very long shot. I mean, the, the 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 obvious answer is that it's a very, very long shot because it would be such a, a dramatic sea change. And there doesn't seem to be unanimous liberal support. However, when we look at who is supporting it or not supporting it, it is very 
important to keep in mind who these pro-status quo institutional players are. People like Harry Reid, people like Stephen Breyer. These are institutional pro-status quo players who, while they might want to make, you know, Democratic Party gradual change we can all believe in, they're not looking to disrupt a political system that has kept them in power. I mean, Stephen Breyer, talk about, you know, diluting his power on the Supreme Court, moving from nine to 10 to 12 to 13 to 25, whatever justices. He sees his own personal power right. as one of the most powerful people in the world, uh, potentially di- diminishing. Although, of course, he should be retiring Spe- any day now. So it doesn't matter. diminishing power. I mean, Harry Reid, who, who cares about right, Harry Reid? Exactly. Harry Reid spends his days going to the Desert Inn buffet getting applesauce. Honestly. Why would we care about his fact, point of view? Right. The fact that we're, we're polling Harry Reid to, to just to get an opinion uh, for somebody who's, uh, you know, strongly against this uh, s- speaks to me that maybe there's more liberal support for the idea um, than we thought. This to, to look at the numbers seems like a dramatic out of nowhere change uh, in response to, oh, well, Trump just got too many conservative justices and we're just, oh, man, I don't want to wait my turn to get that that get the Supreme Court back. But this is a this is a longstanding thing that has been going on for more than 50 years to 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 give you a couple of facts that will maybe throw into uh, sharper relief why it is that some progressives think that the court packing is so important. Since and by ni- the way, that's what the Dodgers need is sharper relief. But that's a different topic. <laughs> Go ahead. Since 1969, Democratic, which is 52 years ago, in the last 52 years, Democratic presidents have appointed four Supreme Court justices, while Republican presidents have appointed 16, four for Democrats, 16 for Republicans. And of those 16 uh, Republicans... Five of those Republican uh, appointees to the Supreme Court were introduced by presidents who lost the popular vote. And then the Republicans, like specifically Mitch McConnell, refused to even hold a hearing. Isn't the message the Democrats need to win more presidential elections? No, it's not that they haven't won more presidential elections in the last 52 years. It's not like the the president, uh, the presidential office has been held, you know, universally or even in a vast majority by Republicans. It has been held mostly by Republicans when you from 69 to now Mm -hmm. you've got Richard Nixon and then only Jimmy Carter had four years and then 12 years of Reagan and Bush. And then Clinton had eight years, but then eight years of Bush and then eight years of uh, Obama and four years of Trump. So a huge majority of the elections have gone to the Republicans. A huge majority of the of the appointments uh, have been by Republicans. But that's just because the Democrats lost. So now they're on a roll. They, but again, won. those five of those 16 have been appointed by Republican presidents who lost the popular yeah, vote. But that doesn't matter because the popular vote is irrelevant to how we pick the president. Oh, uh, but again, the question is, it's why, all about the Electoral College. Why is it a good thing to think of it, well, that's a separate it, it, debate. Irrelevant. That's a separate debate as to whether do you, you get rid of the Electoral College and just go based on popular vote. Well, yes, but it, without even thinking about whether we should get rid of the Electoral College, we can consider, even if we decide to keep doing the president this dumb way, we can consider the implications of doing the president this dumb way. What if doing the president this dumb way also ruins another branch of the, of the federal government, the Supreme Court? And can't we take that into account so when we fa- say, it's okay, fair to take that maybe into we, account. Maybe we will think of, you know, uh, we 
we happen to pick our president uh, randomly by firing a paintball into a crowd of idiots. And then we end up with uh, whoever gets splattered. OK, great. That's a great way to pick the president, guys. I'm super glad we do it. But since it also blows up the efficacy and representation uh, of the will of the people on another separate branch of government in the Supreme Court, how about we take that into account and think about the way that we operate that Supreme Court? So it is a factor to take into account. There's kind of a political motivation, I think, though, uh, duh, duh, to the Democrats <laughs> coming up with this uh, court packing yeah. idea. And the the idea is you go back actually to the early 20th century when Teddy Roosevelt was talking about uh, uh, packing a, a, a court. And the court responded with a different ideological bent of their decisions to make sure that there was no reform. Same thing, when FDR. Yeah. When, same thing when FDR did it in the 1930s. The Republican appointees to the U.S. Supreme Court that had been striking down New Deal reform legislation consistently, which infuriated FDR, suddenly when they are faced with the prospect of a bigger court and their power would be diminished, as you say, suddenly they started voting for the New Deal legislation. Two of the justices literally started changing their votes. I'm wondering if the Democrats are saying to themselves, we want to influence how this current court mm -hmm. votes on big issues, whether it's abortion or affirmative action or mm -hmm. gun rights or, or immigration. Uh, with the threat of yeah. expanding the size of the That's court. That's not, uh, not a bad thought at all. I think it's absolutely correct to think of it that way. And I also think the other strategic or tactical political uh, uh, viewpoint on this is that Biden is, you know, creating this committee to talk about 13 on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. People are talking about court packing generally. That may be political maneuvering such that more centrist Democrats are signing on to this because they might uh, want to enact more reasoned, uh, you know, sort of softer, you'd say, softer reforms to the Supreme Court, like term limits. Now, nobody was saying, even back in FDR's time, nobody was saying that the Supreme Court was going to jump double in size overnight. They all had soft. Yeah, as soon as a guy processes. hits 70 and he doesn't retire, FDR exactly. could add one more person. And the, uh, the concept of uh, eliminating the nonagenarians on the court uh, or having- By eliminating, you, know, you don't mean- No, no, no. 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 Just, just, just saying, you did great. You get a plaque in the Supreme Court building. We're all very- watch. Yeah, we're very proud of you. Great job. But maybe it, it's time uh, to, to, to have somebody- Or not- if not age limits, which is a separate issue of the age limits in the American judiciary, especially the federal judiciary, are staggeringly frightening to, to look at the, uh, the the because, you know, you look at the numbers. A lot of people, as they get on in years, lose their mental faculties. Not everyone, obviously, but there are enough judges that you could say with statistical certainty that there are judges out there making sometimes life or death decisions uh, without their full mental faculties. And there's not a great way of reviewing that and making sure that they're doing OK. okay so I ignoring age limits and getting back to the Supreme Court specifically. Right. Right, that's a whole different topic for a different podcast, by the way. But if you if you just talk about term limits and you say now we'll stop the arms race to the the you know perverse incentive arms race to choose younger and younger justices. We are approaching a, a phase where political parties get the most qualified even if they're a little older. Right. And like Merrick Garland at yeah, age 63. Exactly. And you you're you're going to end up with uh, uh political parties as a lot of people would argue now these political parties chose their most recent justices like Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett as 
the youngest possible person that they can justify getting onto the Supreme Court. You're going to end up with 24-year-old Supreme Court justices because the Republicans want to lock up this suit for an incredibly (laughs) long time. And why wouldn't the Democrats do the same thing? A millennial for the new millennium. Exactly. Now, honestly, I think the thing that has kept this from being a a serious issue is that the Republicans can't guarantee, you know, party line ideology uh, and certainty in somebody who's 24 years old. Like in many other cases, is they appoint somebody to the Supreme Court and then they there's ideological drift. Yeah, you know, they, they change. change. All right. So let me run a theory by you yeah. uh, as to why we've got this court packing idea. And it goes back to uh, 2016 when uh, Antonin Scalia decided to die in February. The next <laughs> God month, bless him for it. The next month. The decision. March 2016. This is an election year. Hmm. President Obama nominated Merrick Garland, age 63. Yep. McConnell said, no, let the public decide the November 2016 election, and then the winner will get to replace Scalia. And that is what happened, because the Republicans controlled the Senate, even though Obama, right. Democrat, was in the White House. For the Democrats, this was World War III. It was pure evil. But listen to our president, Joe Biden, when he was in the Senate in June 1992, an election year, June 1992, not March, but three months later. The president is... Um, the president is Bush, George Bush, the senior. There is no vacancy on the court, but Biden went to the U.S. Senate floor to talk about what should happen if there is a vacancy. Because he was concerned that, you know, in a week or two, there may be a vacancy because Supreme Court justices sometimes Retire. quit on July 1. Right. Here's what Joe Biden said. It is my view that if a Supreme Court justice resigns tomorrow or in the next several weeks or resigns at the end of the summer, President Bush should consider following the practice of a majority of his predecessors and not name a nominee until after the November election is completed. The Senate, too, Mr. President, must consider how it would respond to a Supreme Court vacancy that would occur in the full throes of an election year. It's my view that if the president goes the way of Presidents Fillmore and Johnson and presses an election year nomination... The Senate Judiciary Committee should seriously consider not scheduling confirmation hearings on the nomination until after the political campaign season is over, end quote. Now, that was June 2016. Again, Obama nominated Garland in March 2016. The, the, the quote was June 1992, excuse me. Obama nominated Garland in March 2016. Is there really a difference between March and June in that context? Was not the nation in both cases in the full throes of an election year? And I think what Joe Biden was proposing was not pure evil. If a justice had died in June or resigned a couple of weeks later, the typical time, that's obviously what Joe was concerned about. He wanted the Democrat-controlled Senate to stop the vote to decline to carry out its constitutional duty to give advice and consent to the president. Now, it wouldn't have been pure evil. It was hardball politics, which is what McConnell did. Why is it so hard for the Democrats to get over the fact that McConnell, McConnell was a clever, slippery son of a bitch? And, I mean, doesn't the depth of the emotional reaction against McConnell suggest the Democrats should dial it back? Why would Why should the Republicans, why should the Democrats agree to dial it back and play softball. Because Joe told him to in 1992. And play softball when Mitch McConnell's playing hardball. Why is it any different to say, well, Mitch McConnell can play as hard hardball as he wants, but the, the Democrats now have to get over it. And, and I think the answer is the Democrats will pay the price at, at the ballot box because the American the Republicans are going I to think you're going to sense that it, that it it's a bridge too far, that it, it is too brazenly a, a political power play. You're, you're not worried about the that Republicans for, for elections. The Republicans year? should pay the political price for Mitch McConnell's uh, hardball now. 
He did that in the past. We're now he's now paying the price that they're out of power. And the American people have said, you did a bad job governing. We want to kick you out and put the Democrats into place. We want Joe Biden to be the president. We want there to be a Senate a majority in the Senate for the Democrats. Now is McConnell's turn to pay the, the price for his politics. If in the future, Democrats are going to pay some political price for the decisions that they make to play political hardball, then so be it. That is the price that they have to be willing to pay when they choose what policies to take and how hard hardball politics to play. But to say that in the past, the Democrats, the uh, Republicans played hardball and that's just hardball, baby. But now the Democrats are trying to play hardball and, whoa, they should back it up because they should really be think about how, how uh, you know, what might happen in the future. You know, what? Mitch McConnell should have thought of that. Mitch McConnell should have thought about it before he torpedoed the legitimacy of the Supreme Court by barring Merrick Garland from even getting a hearing. Well, you may be right, and we will know in Shortly. November 2022, and we'll have to wait a little ways to see how the American public reacts to this. Plus, we'll find out within the next several months if there's going to be a real attempt to pack the court. When we come back, the uh, George Floyd trial, uh, Officer Derek Chauvin on trial. Final arguments are on uh, Monday, tomorrow, and when the podcast drops on Wednesday, we may have a verdict. Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Are you in search of deeper meaning in your life? Longing to manifest your true desires and unlock your full potential? Look no further than Portal Mystico Podcast, your gateway to treasure trove of transformative tools, enlightening interviews, and enriching content. I'm your host, Elena Maggio, and it's my heartfelt desire to guide you on this extraordinary journey of self-discovery. And with every episode, I'm passionate about sharing and introducing you to new topics in self-development, metaphysics, astrology, the law of attraction, numerology, interviews that will eliminate your path and fuel your own personal growth. This podcast is your wellspring of inspiration dedicated to help you uncover your purpose with unwavering passion. Together, we'll dive deep into the fascinating topics and explore endless possibilities. Listen to Portal Mystico on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite platform. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Roy Lopes. And I'm Connor Oaks. So the dramatic uh, trial of Officer Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis uh, has just about wrapped up. Uh, of course, this is Sunday. The final arguments are going to be uh, tomorrow uh, on April 19. Uh, I, I wonder, Connor, if you were surprised that the officer did not take the stand. I mean, mm, uh, yeah. he took the Fifth Amendment. And, you know, sometimes cops take the stand. Sometimes they don't. Um, but... I think the conventional wisdom is if you're sitting there as a defense lawyer and the prosecution's case is over and you put on your defense and now uh, the trial's about to wrap up, you ask yourself as a defense lawyer and the defendant, you know, who's going to win? Who's likely to win? And if you say right. to yourself, oh, we've been crushed, yeah, then why not let him testify? Because what is there to lose? Yeah, it could be a very uncomfortable day or two uh, in, in the witness, on the witness stand. Uh, do you think the fact that he didn't testify means that the defense is saying to themselves, 
eh, you know, maybe we pulled this off. We're not necessarily predicting victory, but we think we've got enough of the jurors, like at least one, to prevent the required unanimous uh, 12-0 vote to convict. You think that's what was going on on the defense side? You know, it's possible if the case seems lost, throwing a Hail Mary pass by trying to humanize your client and putting him on the stand. Yeah, might, tearful remorse, yeah. looking the jury in the eyes, saying, yeah. God is my witness, I didn't intend to kill him, I had no idea he would die, I was just trying to follow my duty as I saw my duty. Right. Mm. But as a defense lawyer, you've got to, possible that they evaluated this guy, you know, Chauvin was introspective. That's true, they may have had mock said, examinations. Yeah, I'm sure they did. Absolutely. I'm sure they did. And they, you know, having done it, practiced it 10 times, they came to the conclusion, oh, my God, <laughs> it was bad every single time. Yeah, this is only going to hurt us. And w- whatever chance we have to get a defense verdict on this or get the lowest possible sentence uh, for for our, our, our client here, um, the, the, the one thing I know is that this is only going to make it worse. And even if it's only going to make it worse by, you know, an average of 5, 10, 15, 20 percent, I mean, what's the point? If you're going to ro- get up there and roll the dice with the guy's, uh, rest of the guy's life, um, the, the, the safe play might be to just, you know, cross your fingers and hope that you've done a good enough job. Is it possible for the guy, the cop, to get a fair trial in a climate where not only is the entire uh, community up in arms over over what yeah, he did? Yeah, we talked about that last week. What yeah. he did. And now add to it this uh, lady officer, Potter, I think is her name. And Dante Wright, the victim. Yeah. yeah she thought supposedly she was uh, tasing him and she actually right. shot him to death. And who knows you know, what the outcome will be of, of her trial. She's now going on trial for manslaughter. But that just doubled down in terms of, of the reaction of the citizens of Minneapolis. Yeah. How, how do you make sure that somebody gets a fair trial in that kind of climate? Well, some people would say sequestering the jury is the answer. Um, so they don't have that information on the sort of developing and story. And they are sequestered for the deliberations right. now, but they were not for the bulk of the trial. Right. Um, the other uh, perspective on this is that sequestering the jury, instructing them to disregard the facts that they know about the world around them will make, will one, be impossible, or would, if even possible, make them unable to fairly evaluate the case. Because when we say, can this guy get a fair trial, you can't really imagine that you can have a trial about police brutality without knowledge or maybe even experience of the jurors, the jury of one's peers, knowing about the history of police brutality in the United States. It's not like you're going to get a jury who's never heard of Rodney King, and you shouldn't have a jury that's never heard of Rodney King. If you had a jury that's that's never heard of Rodney King, you have a bunch of weirdos. (laughs) They're working too hard. Yeah, they're like 25-year-olds maybe who just were too young for this is the only explanation, unless they're some sort of Unabomber-style hermit who lives in a a cabin in the woods. You need people on the jury who are smart and informed about you know the world around them and to try to shelter them from uh you know generic you know events that happen every day in America or all but 18 days in the average year in America is an impossible futile and probably counterproductive task but instead if you say look we understand that police brutality and and police uh killings of American citizens are part of the fabric of our American society. It's a thing that happens. And if you don't know that, and if you don't, you know, see that, if if all of a sudden, uh, conversely, if we just had a really dry spell, if we just had a fantastic, amazing, lucky series of, uh, of, of days where there were no mass shootings in America, no cop shootings in America, no gang shootings in America, and then you have a trial uh, during that time uh, about a shooting in that context, 
Shouldn't the, the prosecution say, hey, let's sequester the jury so that they don't know that for whatever reason, because of the weather, maybe there are, have been no cop shootings lately, because that's going to tell them, oh, maybe cop shootings have been cured and solved. Maybe America's healing. Uh, it, you know, there's no there's no way to, to, to defend uh, the, the argument against uh, jurors knowing that, you know, police shootings are happening without also defending the idea, the ridiculous idea that I uh, put out there that, wow, you know, there've been no police shootings in the last 10 days. Let's not tell the, the jurors that either. It You need jurors who know what the heck is going on in the world yeah, because no, it gives I, them I agree, context. If cops are running around, as a rule, our cops are running around brutalizing American citizens and hurting people. That's important information for jurors to know in a cop brutality case. So let's go to the records book, record book. Um, I want to give you a few facts about cops who have uh, shot and killed suspects who were put on trial. And some of them testified and some of them didn't. And these are some of the facts probably the Derek Chauvin team took into account. In the last five or six years, there have been five cops who did testify in their own defense. Uh, Two of them were found guilty. Van Dyke in Chicago in 2018 and Noor in Minneapolis in 2019 found guilty. Two were found not guilty. Shelby in Oklahoma and Yanez in Minneapolis. Minneapolis is a dangerous place. Yeah. Both not guilty. And one, there was a hung jury, uh, a Mr. Slager in South Carolina in 2016. So it's kind of interesting that it's all over the map. So it there is. wasn't a clear historical pattern. Yeah. And that those stats, of course, could well be influenced by that fact we mentioned earlier that Cops might sometimes testify, as the defense goes last, as a Hail Mary when a case right. is going badly. So maybe testifying, you know, is a, a good idea, seeing that, you know, of those that, that testified, uh, you only had two convictions. So maybe maybe these Hail Marys work. So the final stat I want to give you has to do with the taser confusion issue, because um, it's interesting. In the last 20 years, eight Cops have been charged criminally in taser confusion cases. Now, this is overall out of 18 shootings where people were killed, where the cops say it was a mistake. Uh, Eight of them were charged. That means 10 were not charged. So let's look at the eight who have been charged for killing somebody in a taser confusion case. The eighth, of course, is this new one, Officer Potter. So now let's look at the seven over the last 20 years where cops were charged. Mm -hmm. Three were convicted and four were not convicted. So it's kind of an even Stephen thing. The highest profile case, of course, was the Bay Area Rapid Transit BART officer in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, He killed Oscar Grant on New Year's Day in 2009 as Grant lay face down on the train platform. It was Officer Johannes Meserly. He was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. So... It's not an unheard of charge at all. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, uh, the uh, the lady who's been uh, charged in Minneapolis, I guess Brooklyn Center, uh, her trial probably will happen in the next year or so. So, big week coming up in the George Floyd trial. We will be watching it, and I expect we'll uh, talk about it next time on Absolutely. Too Many Lawyers. Y'all have a great week. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.